Our text this morning is Psalm 3. Psalm 3. The title tells us that this is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. God had promised the throne to David, and yet David had committed great crimes as king. He'd committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he had Uriah, her husband, murdered. The story's familiar, I'm sure. The Lord mercifully spares his life after his repentance. But there's a chastisement on David for his sins, and it's quite severe. Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells him that his punishment will be essentially threefold. First, Nathan tells David that the sword by which he had had Uriah killed would never depart from his house. Second, he tells him that his own wives would be taken and given to one who would lie with them in broad daylight in front of Israel. And third, the child born to Bathsheba would die. These are grievous chastisements. They're upon David for his sins. And as the narrative unfolds, it's in 2 Samuel, you can see these divine sanctions, chastisements, punishments, discipline, taking shape. David's son, Amnon, rapes his own sister, Tamar. And then Absalom, another son of David, kills Amnon and flees into exile. It's a good bit of family dysfunctionality. David, he deals kindly with Absalom. And after three years in exile, he allows him back into Jerusalem. And what Absalom does to repay his father is to engage in a political conspiracy a coup to subvert the nation against his father. And we're told in 2 Samuel 15 that the the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So finally David and the remnant faithful to him are forced, like all crumbling regimes seem to be, to flee. David flees the city. Absalom enters the city, takes over as king. So, before we look at Psalm 3, which is written in response to all this, I want us to think a little bit about David's mental state here. I mean, in one sense, he could have said, Woe is me. I had all this coming. It was even promised by the prophet because of my sins. And now it's unfolding. This is God's judgment on me. In fact, as David is in exile, he passes through one small town fleeing. And a man named Shammai accosts him and hurls stones at him and says, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged all the blood of the house of Saul on you, and he's given your kingdom into the hand of your son. You think when he left office, George Bush had a low approval rating? David would kill for 27% right now. 
So even the people in exile think he, they, they think he's cursed. But David, he doesn't fall into despair. What he does is he prays this psalm, Psalm 3. And though the psalm has this original setting, it's general enough that we can apply it to our own lives, our own crises, even if they're not as dramatic or traumatic as David's. So I want to look at the text under four headings. They're there in your bulletin. Foes, the Lord, sleep and deliverance. Foes, the Lord, sleep and deliverance. So first, foes. In verse 1, Psalm 3, verse 1, we read, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Now, in original context, this is a reference to the broad, the strength, the broad popularity of Absalom's conspiracy. Right? The foes here are very real foes, political foes in David's case. And in verse 2, he says, many are saying of me, many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. So I want to sort out here a few things which I think are quite practical for us. We are often in trouble or in distress because of our own prior sins. That's certainly the case here. It may be that the Lord's chastisement is upon us. That is certainly the case with David. Part of what this means is that life is messy. Really, really messy. David's surely was messy. And it doesn't divide up easily into people with white hats and people with black hats and situations where we're without any blame and they have all the blame. It hardly ever divides up into situations where we have only a little blame and they have most of the blame. But we're stuck in the middle of it. And we have to try and sort it out if we're going to keep our sanity. And in this, I think, what David is doing here in Psalm 3 is a good example. This is what I think is important and explains David's prayer in the text. He has repented of his sins. The Lord has forgiven him. But then through Nathan, the Lord promised that there would be these downstream disastrous chastisements. But David, because he knows he's repented, because he knows the Lord forgives sins... He sees these current distresses, as grievous as they are, he sees them as fatherly. He sees them as as a loving father's hand. That's how he sees the chastisements. And the, the, the whole psalm is proof that David believes that. He believes that because God has forgiven his sins, his many sins, God is not his enemy. God is on his side. The existence of the psalm proves that. Now think of this, right? You, have, you, are, you are in exile from your own son who killed your other son who raped his sister. And that's not the half of it. But David is sure God is with him and God is not his enemy. And it can be difficult to believe this in times of great suffering and distress and familial strife and unraveling. But Psalm 3 is testimony to the fact that David believes it. And it's a challenge. 
We tend to think when things are unraveling, this must be a sign. God hates me. This is one of the reasons we should not overread providence and events. <coughs> so we know our sins. David knows his. We have a sense of our unworthiness, I think, without being, you know, we have a healthy sense of it. But if we've confessed them, and we do that here every, every week, and we sought the Lord's mercy, we must be assured that God is with us in our disruptions and trials, even if those disruptions and trials are our fault. This is one of the great lessons of Psalm 3. David, in the midst of this really a horrible sequence of events, <clears throat> he grasps this. He does not despair. He believes God loves him. God has made promises to him. And God has not abandoned him. And so that should encourage you. Even as we experience distress from our own forgiven sins or our foes of any sort. So what does David do? His first word here is crucial. He cries out, Lord. He invokes God's name. It is strange, is it not, how long it can take us to do this in our troubles? <laughs> but when we do do it, when we turn and we simply say, Lord, we use the divine name, we make contact with him. We open ourselves up in the situation, we bring him into the situation. That's the beginning of our freedom. That simple cry changes the situation. It reorients us under the reality of God and his mighty name. Turn to God, use his name, call upon him by name. And this cry here is raw and realistic. It's very desperate, David's situation. And this is another thing I think we learn here. Our prayers have got to reflect reality. It's one of the great gifts of the Psalter to the church. It teaches us that prayer is as raw and as jagged and as many faceted as our lives are. God knows your situation. You're not going to surprise him. He knows your heart in its unvarnished truth. He can handle the truth. So tell him. So tell him. He doesn't need us to regurgitate stuff back to him covered in pious platitudes. And the psalmist never does that. You can bet God has heard a lot worse than anything you can cry out to him. Three times the psalmist, three times he uses the word many. Many are my foes, many rise up against me, many are saying. Many are saying God will not deliver him. There's no victory, there's no salvation for him in God. This, I think, this is the heart of what confronts us often in our troubles, is it not? It is the... the Accusation, the suggestion, 
the thought that God will not deliver us. That we're out here on a limb, that we're in a situation, and we're exposed. Maybe he can't do it. Maybe he's not real. Maybe he won't do it because we are disqualified and undeserving. Many are saying, there is no deliverance for him in God. And this charge creeps into every little crevice of our doubt and our guilt and our anxiety and our fear. And to pretend that it's not there is to turn prayer into a form of lying. And so David prays it. Many, 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 they're saying there's no deliverance. And so we are, we're forced by life into this choice where we can believe all these voices, many of them are inside our own heads, that say God will not deliver him, or we can believe God. And when we start like David starts, by invoking the divine name, by pouring out our hearts, the reality of our hearts to God, we're choosing, like David is, to believe in God. (coughs) So the second point here is the Lord. Verse 3. In contrast to all these voices of the many, the psalmist turns to the one. The one whose voice outweighs all other voices. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. Life for David, and sooner or later for all of us, will force us to see that God is the only defense we need. And indeed, he's the only defense we have. Notice that this, when David calls the Lord his shield, it's not like a normal shield that just protects you in the front. The text says he's a shield around us. Because the many anxieties, the many foes, that you have, they assault you from every side. They don't just come from the front. So distress and doubt and anxiety come from every angle, and the Lord is a 360-degree, 24-7 protector. David says, a shield all around you. As our closing hymn will put it, he's a battle shield, a sword for your fight. His own presence, his own name. We have to assert this as David does, in the face of our foes. In the face here of a frowning providence. A frowning providence is a providence where you look at events and you think, my, God must hate me. David is in what is called a frowning providence. We have to assert this shield-like character of God in in the teeth of every other voice. And David goes on and says, God is his glory. It's quite a thing to pray in the situation that David is in. You're my glory. You know, glory is attributed to God. First and foremost. And you know what it means? When we say that God is glorious, we are saying that he is weighty. He's weightier, more substantial, and more real than every 
solid, rock-like thing in your existence. The invisible God is more real than all visible things. He's weighty. And it's a radiant kind of weightiness. He, in other words, as the glorious God, is the, is the most substantial, weighty, important being in existence. And that means your foes are light. He is substantial. Your foes are vapor. And he who is glorious, David says, he has become my glory. He bestows that glory on me. God gives some of his radiant splendor to David, his weight, his honor. He is, again, in the words of our closing hymn, he's our dignity and our delight. And David is a man in need of the restoration of his dignity. And it's important to see that in this psalm, I think. God does not berate. He does not humiliate his children. There's enough humiliation in David's situation. And what God is doing is becoming his glory, seeking his well-being, upholding his dignity in distress. He who is glorious is your glory in what might otherwise be humiliating circumstances. And not only that, the text says God is the lifter, the one who stoops down and lifts up David's head. These are beautiful words here, where David refers to the Lord as my glory and the one who lifts my head. Because our heads are often bowed down, discouraged, dejected, with shame. And God is about stooping down and lifting us up, turning our eyes up, up to his name, to the heavens, from whence comes our help, and from whence comes eventually our exaltation. He says here in verse 4, I I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. And David was heard here. We know this from the rest of the story. He's restored to the throne. Absalom dies in battle. But he expresses this confidence that he's going to be restored while still in trouble. While still in the face of foes. While still in exile. He's saying something like this to us. God has heard my cries in the past, and so he will hear and he will answer them now. The Lord has heard your cries in the past. He will hear. He will answer your cries now. This is one of the great messages of the Psalms. You're sitting here, are you not? You're in Christ Jesus. All the promises of Israel have been fulfilled in Christ, and you have been gathered up into this great narrative. God has heard your cries. God has answered you. And he will answer you in the future. He has quickened you and raised you in Christ. He will raise you from the dead. He can take care of the current distress. And the third point here then is sleep. Which some of you may be doing. (laughs) There's some of you I don't have to preach to about this. (laughs) Uh, So, verses 5 and 6 are... A wonderful testimony to God's provision in the midst of this anxiety, this distress. I lay down and sleep. I awake again because the Lord sustains me. Now picture this. 
You're, you're fleeing from a political conspiracy. You're out in the middle of nowhere. You're exiled. David says, I was able to lay down and sleep comfortably. And sleep is a gift of God. Did you thank God for it this morning? There are a million wonders happening involuntarily while you sleep. All of which are tokens of the fact that God cares for you. They're tokens of His goodness. You know what they are? They're a sign that He is a shield all around you. And it might seem odd to us that David singles this out. I mean, think of that. Again, your son rapes his sister, your other son kills that son, there's a conspiracy, you're driven into exile, you call out to the Lord and you start to, you start to enumerate your blessings and you start with, I slept. In the midst of the, the tumult of his foes, with his life threatened, this is a marvelous gift and he does not leave it unacknowledged. We don't see the stuff that's lying right at hand sometimes to be thankful for, to give thanks for, and we don't vocalize it. It's one of the lessons of this psalm. Find things, simple, often overlooked things, and give thanks for them. Acknowledge the Lord's protection in the midst of these long-standing, intractable, hopeless situations, for He is shielding you. So we should vocalize, David says, the various forms in which God is defending me. I mean, is it not true that in the midst of life's stresses, a good night's sleep is a wonderful blessing? Not only did he sleep, the text says he awoke. And he awoke because the Lord sustained him. We should awake with gratitude because waking in the morning is a token of the resurrection. So the sentiment of Psalm 3 is a sentiment that we should have in the mornings. Because he sought the Lord. Because God heard him from Zion. In the midst of this messy situation he's in, guess what? He slept. And the text continues, I will not fear tens of thousands who swarm or assail me from every side. There's nothing like a good night's sleep to reinvigorate your confidence in the Lord's protection. Things look better in the morning or different in the morning if you've slept well. So David wakes up after a good night's sleep and says, you know what? I'm not going to fear if 10,000 people swarm upon me from every side. The Lord kept me through the night. He shielded me through the night. My evening of sleep was attended by 20 million miracles. And if the Lord can do that, He can give me sleep, then He can deliver me from 10,000 enemies. Who knows? Maybe sleep's the harder thing. So start with what He has done and do not fear the future. David says, no matter how ominous, you slept last night? Don't worry about your enemies. Finally, deliverance. Finally. Verse 7. We get a A glimpse of just what David prayed when he called out. He says, Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. There's a kind of reversal here. In verses 1 and 2, it says, Many are rising up, saying, There's no deliverance. David reverses this and says, 
Rise up, O Lord, and deliver. All these voices rising up, saying no deliverance. David goes to God and says, rise up and deliver. Fight fire with fire when you pray. Go right at the problem. Don't meander around. Place the matter into God's hands and challenge him to rise up and deliver. Like if I could put this reverently, make God responsible for fixing the situation. That's what David does here. You notice all these foes, many, 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 saying no deliverance, no deliverance. Rising up, saying no deliverance. David goes to the Lord, says, you arise and deliver. We like a third option. The third option is we take matter into our own hands and try and deliver ourselves. It's God's business, not yours, to prove that those who say there's no deliverance for you are wrong. You don't need any clever arguments. You need to challenge God. You need to talk to him as if he's the living God. And so David here can talk like this in part because even though all this has come upon him, he is convinced that he's the rightful king. And so he says, strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. Meaning, shut their mouths, defang, defang them, their venom, their violence. And all the cursing and the conspiring and the clamor and the boasting of tongues against David was silenced. It was silenced by the living God, the God who heard David, the God of his salvation. So again, there are all these voices out in your life or in your head. You have to speak these words to those voices. You call upon the Lord to silence them. Finally, notice something. We haven't said much about this to this point, but it's important to see this. David is a public figure. He's the king, the anointed king. And he's conscious of this, being a public figure, a representative of Yahweh and his covenant to Israel. In verse 7 he says, From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be upon your people. In other words, he's saying, Lord, when you deliver your king, your anointed one, then your blessing will rest upon your people. And this means your blessing, your deliverance, is finally secured to you in Jesus Christ. It's very important to see that. His deliverance is your deliverance. In one sense, Jesus Christ is the prayer of this prayer. His enemies were silenced, he was delivered. He was installed as rightful king, even though those he came to rejected him. His nation rejected him. But in his deliverance, you're delivered. And in him, all the blessings of God rest upon you. And thus we can see that David is both a picture, a type of Jesus Christ, and an example for us. Example in our trials and sufferings. So, 
call out to the Lord. Invoke his name. Do it in the midst of your foes, in the midst of many voices. Because deliverance belongs to the Lord. And he, the Lord is your glory. He lifts up our sagging heads. He hears us from his holy hill. He gives us sleep. And then he arises to silence our foes. What Psalm 3 says is he blesses us in spite of our sins and weaknesses. He's in the midst of situations which we are responsible for creating. And he delivers us. He delivers us in the ever-blessed and victorious Son of David, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.